Section 11 of Chapter 18 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 18, Section 11. Meanwhile, the preparations for his expedition were going on fast. He was on the point of setting out for the place of embarkation before the English government was at all aware of the danger which was impending. It had been long known, indeed, that many thousands of Irish were assembled in Normandy, but it was supposed that they had been assembled merely that they might be mustered and drilled before they were sent to Flanders, Piedmont, and Catalonia. Now, however, intelligence arriving from many quarters left no doubt that an invasion would be almost immediately attempted. Vigorous preparations for defense were made. The equipping and manning of the ships was urged forward with vigor. The regular troops were drawn together between London and the sea. A great camp was formed on the down which overlooks Portsmouth. The militia all over the kingdom was called out. Two Westminster regiments and six city regiments, making up a force of 13,000 fighting men, were arrayed in Hyde Park and passed in review before the Queen. The train-bands of Kent, Sussex, and Surrey marched down to the coast. Watchmen were posted by the beacons. Some non-jurors were imprisoned, some disarmed, some held to bail. The house of the Earl of Huntingdon, a noted Jacobite, was searched. He had time to burn his papers and to hide his arms, but his stables presented a most suspicious appearance. Horses enough to mount a whole troop of cavalry were at the mangers, and this evidence, though not legally sufficient to support a charge of treason, was thought sufficient at such a conjuncture to justify the Privy Council in sending him to the Tower. Meanwhile James had gone down to his army, which was encamped around the basin of La Hogue, on the northern coast of the peninsula known by the name of the Cotentin. Before he quitted St. Germain's, he held a chapter of the Garter for the purpose of admitting his son into the order. Two noblemen were honoured with the same distinction, Powys, who among his brother exiles was now called a duke, and Melfort, who had returned from Rome, and was again James's prime minister. Even at this moment, when it was of the greatest importance to conciliate the members of the Church of England, none but members of the Church of Rome were thought worthy of any mark of royal favour. Powys, indeed, was an eminent member of the English aristocracy, and his countrymen disliked him as little as they disliked any conspicuous papist. But Melfort was not even an Englishman. He had never held office in England, he had never sat in the English Parliament, and he had therefore no pretensions to a dignity peculiarly English. He was moreover hated by all the contending factions of all the three kingdoms. Royal letters countersigned by him had been sent both to the convention at Westminster and to the convention at Edinburgh, and both at Westminster and at Edinburgh. The sight of his odious name and handwriting had made the most zealous friends of hereditary right hang down their heads in shame. It seems strange that even James should have chosen at such a conjuncture to proclaim to the world that the men whom his people most abhorred were the men whom he most delighted to honour. Still more injurious to his interests was the declaration in which he announced his intentions to his subjects. Of all the state papers which were put forth even by him, 
it was the most elaborately and ostentatiously injudicious. When it had disgusted and exasperated all good Englishmen of all parties, the Papists at St. Germain's pretended that it had been drawn up by a staunch Protestant, Edward Herbert, who had been Chief Justice of the Common Pleas before the Revolution, and who now bore the empty title of Chancellor. But it is certain that Herbert was never consulted about any matter of importance, and that the declaration was the work of Melfort, and Melfort alone. In truth, those qualities of head and heart, which had made Melfort the favorite of his master, shone forth in every sentence. Not a word was to be found indicating that three years of banishment had made the king wiser, that he had repented of a single error, that he took to himself even the smallest part of the blame of that revolution which had dethroned him, or that he purposed to follow a course in any respect differing from that which had already been fatal to him. All the charges which had been brought against him he pronounced to be utterly unfounded. Wicked men had put forth calumnies. Weak men had believed those calumnies. He alone had been faultless. He held out no hope that he would consent to any restriction of that vast dispensing power to which he had formerly laid claim, that he would not again, in defiance of the plainest statutes, fill the privy council, the bench of justice, the public offices, the army, the navy, with papists, that he would not re-establish the high commission, that he would not appoint a new set of regulators to remodel all the constituent bodies of the kingdom. He did indeed condescend to say that he would maintain the legal rights of the Church of England, but he had said this before, and all men knew what those words meant in his mouth. Instead of assuring his people of his forgiveness, he menaced them with a proscription more terrible than any which our island has ever seen. He published a list of persons who had no mercy to expect. Among these were Ormond, Carmarthen, Nottingham, Tillotson, and Burnett. After the rolls of those who were doomed to death by name came a series of categories. First stood all the crowd of rustics who had been rude to His Majesty when he was stopped at Sheerness in his flight. These poor, ignorant wretches, some hundreds in number, were reserved for another bloody circuit. Then came all persons who had in any manner borne a part in the punishment of any Jacobite conspirator, judges, counsel, witnesses, grand jurymen, petty jurymen, sheriffs and undersheriffs, constables and turnkeys, in short, all the ministers of justice from Holt down to Ketch. Then vengeance was denounced against all spies and all informers who had divulged to the usurpers the designs of the court of St. Germain's, all justices of the peace who should not declare for their rightful sovereign the moment that they heard of his landing, all jailers who should not instantly set political prisoners at liberty were to be left to the extreme rigor of the law. No exception was made in favor of a justice or a jailer who might be within a hundred yards of one of William's regiments and a hundred miles from the nearest place where there was a single Jacobite in arms. It might have been expected that James, after thus denouncing vengeance against large classes of his subjects, would at least have offered a general amnesty to the rest. But of general amnesty he said not a word. He did indeed promise that any offender who was not in any of the categories of proscription, and who should by any eminent service merit indulgence, should receive a special pardon. But with this exception, 
All the offenders, hundreds of thousands in number, were merely informed that their fate should be decided in Parliament. The agents of James speedily dispersed his declaration over every part of the kingdom, and by doing so rendered a great service to William. The general cry was that the banished oppressor had at least given Englishmen fair warning, and that if after such a warning they welcomed him home, they would have no pretense for complaining, though every county town should be polluted by an assize resembling that which Jeffreys had held at Taunton. That some hundreds of people, the Jacobites put the number so low as five hundred, were to be hanged without mercy was certain and nobody who had concurred in the revolution, nobody who had fought for the new government by sea or land, no soldier who had borne a part in the conquest of Ireland, no Devonshire ploughman or Cornish miner who had taken arms to defend his wife and children against Tourville, could be certain that he should not be hanged. How abject, too, how spiteful, must be the nature of a man who engaged in the most momentous of all undertakings, and aspiring to the noblest of all prizes, could not refrain from proclaiming that he thirsted for the blood of a multitude of poor fishermen, because, more than three years before, they had pulled him about and called him hatchet-face. If at the very moment when he had the strongest motives for trying to conciliate his people by the show of clemency, he could not bring himself to hold toward them any language but that of an implacable enemy, what was to be expected from him when he should be again their master? So savage was his nature, that in a situation in which all other tyrants have resorted to blandishments and fair promises, he could utter nothing but reproaches and threats. The only words in his declaration which had any show of graciousness were those in which he promised to send away the foreign troops as soon as his authority was re-established, and many said that those words, when examined, would be found full of sinister meaning. He held out no hope that he would send away Popish troops who were his own subjects. His intentions were manifest. The French might go, but the Irish would remain." The people of England were to be kept down by these thrice-subjugated barbarians, no doubt a rapparee who had run away at Newton Butler and the Boyne might find courage enough to guard the scaffolds on which his conquerors were to die, and to lay waste our country as he had laid waste his own. The Queen and her ministers, instead of attempting to suppress James' manifesto, very wisely reprinted it and sent it forth licensed by the Secretary of State and interspersed with remarks by a shrewd and severe commentator. It was refuted in many keen pamphlets. It was turned into doggerel rhymes, and it was left undefended even by the boldest and most acrimonious libelers among the non-jurors. Indeed, some of the non-jurors were so much alarmed by observing the effect which this manifesto produced that they affected to treat it as spurious, and published as their master's genuine declaration a paper full of gracious professions and promises. They made him offer a free pardon to all his people with the exception of four great criminals. They made him hold out hopes of great remissions of taxation. They made him pledge his word that he would entrust the whole ecclesiastical administration to the non-juring bishops. But this forgery imposed on nobody and was important only as showing that even the Jacobites were ashamed of the prince whom they were laboring to restore. 
No man read the declaration with more surprise and anger than Russell. Bad as he was, he was much under the influence of two feelings, which, though they cannot be called virtuous, have some affinity to virtue, and are respectable when compared with mere selfish cupidity. Professional spirit and party spirit were strong in him. He might be false to his country, but not to his flag. And even in becoming a Jacobite he had not ceased to be a Whig. In truth he was a Jacobite only because he was the most intolerant and acrimonious of Whigs. He thought himself and his faction ungratefully neglected by William, and was for a time too much blinded by resentment to perceive that it would be mere madness in the old roundheads, the old exclusionists, to punish William by recalling James. The near prospect of an invasion, and the declaration in which Englishmen were plainly told what they had to expect if that invasion should be successful, produced, it would seem, a sudden and entire change in Russell's feelings, and that change he distinctly avowed. I wish, he said to Lloyd, to serve King James. The thing might be done if it were not his own fault, but he takes the wrong way with us. Let him forget all the past. Let him grant a general pardon, and then I will see what I can do for him. Lloyd hinted something about the honors and rewards designed for Russell himself, but the admiral, with a spirit worthy of a better man, cut him short. I do not wish to hear anything on that subject. My solicitude is for the public, and do not think that I will let the French triumph over us in our own sea. Understand this, that if I meet them, I fight them. I, though his majesty himself, should be on board. This conversation was truly reported to James, but it does not appear to have alarmed him. He was indeed possessed with a belief that Russell, even if willing, would not be able to induce the officers and sailors of the English navy to fight against their old king, who was also their old admiral. The hopes which James felt, he and his favorite Melford succeeded in imparting to Lewis and to Lewis's ministers. But for these hopes, indeed, it is probable that all thoughts of invading England in the course of that year would have been laid aside. For the extensive plan which had been formed in the winter had, in the course of the spring, been disconcerted by a succession of accidents such as are beyond the control of human wisdom. The time fixed for the assembling of all the maritime forces of France at Ushant had long elapsed, and not a single sail had appeared at the place of rendezvous. The Atlantic squadron was still detained by bad weather in the port of Brest, the Mediterranean squadron, opposed by a strong west wind, was vainly struggling to pass the Pillars of Hercules. Two fine vessels had gone to pieces on the rocks of Ceuta. Meanwhile, the admiralties of the Allied powers had been active. Before the end of April, the English fleet was ready to sail. Three noble ships, just launched from our dockyards, appeared for the first time on the water. William had been hastening the maritime preparations of the United Provinces, and his exertions had been successful. On the 29th of April a fine squadron from the Texel appeared in the Downs. Soon came the North Holland squadron, the Mays squadron, the Zeeland squadron. The whole force of the Confederate powers was assembled at St. Helens in the second week of May, more than ninety sail of the line, manned by between thirty and forty thousand of the finest seamen of the two great maritime nations. Russell had the chief command. 
He was assisted by Sir Ralph Delaval, Sir John Ashley, Sir Cloudsley Chauvel, Rear Admiral Carter, and Rear Admiral Rook. Of the Dutch officers, Van Almond was highest in rank. No mightier armament had ever appeared in the British Channel. There was little reason for apprehending that such a force could be defeated in a fair conflict. Nevertheless, there was great uneasiness in London. It was known that there was a Jacobite party in the navy. Alarming rumors had worked their way round from France. It was said that the enemy reckoned on the cooperation of some of those officers on whose fidelity in this crisis the safety of the state might depend. Russell, as far as can now be discovered, was still unsuspected. But others, who were probably less criminal, had been more indiscreet. At all the coffee-houses, admirals and captains were mentioned by name as traitors, who ought to be instantly cashiered if not shot. It was confidently affirmed that some of the guilty had been put under arrest, and others turned out of the service. The Queen and her counsellors were in a great strait. It was not easy to say whether the danger of trusting the suspected persons, or the danger of removing them, were the greater. Mary, with many painful misgivings, resolved, and the event proved that she resolved wisely, to treat the evil reports as calumnious, to make a solemn appeal to the honor of the accused gentlemen, and then to trust the safety of her kingdom to their national and professional spirit. On the 15th of May a great assembly of officers was convoked at St. Helens on board the Britannia, a fine three-decker from which Russell's flag was flying. The admiral told them that he had received a dispatch which he was charged to read to them. It was from Nottingham. The Queen, the secretary wrote, had been informed that stories deeply affecting the character of the Navy were in circulation. It had even been affirmed that she had found herself under the necessity of dismissing many officers. But Her Majesty was determined to believe nothing against those brave servants of the State. The gentlemen who had been so foully slandered might be assured that she placed entire reliance on them. The letter was admirably calculated to work on those to whom it was addressed. Very few of them probably had been guilty of any worse offence than rash and angry talk over their wine. They were as yet only grumblers. If they had fancied that they were marked men, they might in self-defence have become traitors. They became enthusiastically loyal as soon as they were assured that the Queen reposed entire confidence in their loyalty. They eagerly signed an address, in which they entreated her to believe that they would, with the utmost resolution and alacrity, venture their lives in defense of her rights, of English freedom, and of the Protestant religion, against all foreign and popish invaders. God, they added, preserve your person, direct your counsels, and prosper your arms, and let all your people say Amen. The sincerity of these professions was soon brought to the test. A few hours after the meeting on board of the Britannia, the masts of Tourville's squadron were seen from the cliffs of Portland. One messenger galloped with the news from Weymouth to London, and roused Whitehall at three in the morning. Another took the coast road and carried the intelligence to Russell. All was ready, and on the morning of the 17th of May the Allied fleet stood out to sea. End of section 11.